from a box that everyone has, it's the IGN DigiGods. Now please welcome two men who followed the wrong man, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Corey had no... Corey, did... <laughs> what was that reference all about? That was written by Luke Weber trying to mock me for not having any idea what that reference is. <laughs> the wrong man. We actually, when we recorded that, we sat around forever, and uh, we, we, I think we were all a little bit puzzled. Uh, Corey? I know the running man. Yeah. Sub-Zero! Now plane zero! Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah! You like, you like how I kind of... Slot it all in and have a conversation with Corey, even if he's not in the room. Don't give it away. You did that so well, and now you've ruined it. I know. Unbelievable. Anyway. Um, yes, right. Wade. So Ant-Man, uh, $60 million. Yeah, kind of a disappointment, right? Um, I think they expected a little bit more, but they did not expect 80 or 100. Yeah. I mean, they expected around 60. It's minor Marvel. It's, I well, think it is minor was, Marvel. There's I think no doubt was, about it. I think it was intentionally designed to lower expectations because every Marvel film of late has just been through the roof. And this was their way of, I think, saying, hey, you know, we got some minor people and we're still going to make money on them and don't, don't expect uh, the sky to be the limit for every single one. Well, what's nice is that in, in the film, it's not about the fate of the world. The, there's, no, there's no gigantic wormhole opening in the sky. with a it's just, You know what it is? It's a heist film. They got Ant-Man's yeah. got to go steal something, and then he goes, he steals it, and then whatever, the movie's over. Yeah. I mean, which is which is refreshing. Yes, it I is. I mean, they 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 know that going in yes, that the is. fate of the universe is not. A, there's no Thanos. There's no aliens. There's nothing. Here's my question: Will there be another Ant-Man? Is it going to be a franchise, no. or is this just? A I, I I I think he'll wind up in he'll wind up in the other Marvel, you know, the Avengers, and yeah. he'll show up in a Captain America film. I don't really see a necessarily yeah, a, a franchise there. Alex Rocco, man. I know. That sucks. He was shot in the eye. In well, on on not not yesterday, but uh, in on film, yes. In the Godfather. Yeah. Oh, he's he's not just in the Godfather. He was a great voice on The Simpsons. He was very true. He's super cool. But he was not Mo on The Simpsons, even though he was Mo in The Godfather. Isn't that interesting? No, not really. No, he's just a dude, guy doing his yeah. thing. Okay. All right. I just because there is a Mo on The Simpsons, but there is. Uh, so, uh, what else we got? I mean, it's, uh, we're, um, we're not going to talk about Donald Trump. We're... He's, the, he's the best. <laughs> Isn't he the most, you know, you know, Huffington Post, did you hear what Huffington Post did? I think it, I mean, look, that's, it's I, the it, best. It's, but it's tacky. What it basically, not that anyone accepts the Huffington Post as like a legitimate news source. You know, journalists hate the Huffington Post because they basically let anybody sort of shill as a journalist and, you know, it's kind of like. That could be me. It, it's the strip club of journalism is what it is. You know, you pay them for, for, for stage time and, and that's how it works. But uh, but you know what? All it did is it just it's you know he's playing the media like a fiddle. Which, he, which, he he is, but I but I don't know what the long game. Look, if the long game is just more recognition, yeah. and money for his other ventures, that's fine. But he's also really bringing down Whatever. the whole presidential process. <laughs> like it could like can it be brought down lower? Exactly. Well, no. Well, here's the thing though. It's like he it's a. For, he'll, he'll never be president. Just forget it. He's yeah, he, he's just getting attention for himself and whipping up the base. And the base would just as soon send all black people and Mexicans to Mars than anything else. So he's you know. But when you start ripping on 
you know, John McCain and say that he, he, he likes his POW. It's, look, it's a funny line, and if he was doing a stand-up act, I'm sure I would probably laugh uproariously. But in the context of a presidential campaign, it's just not only is he bringing himself down, but the GOP's got to worry because he, he's going to bring them uh, down too. Uh, you know what? Our news cycle lasts for, for 14 seconds now. I, I, I guarantee you uh, by, by, you know, uh, November, if he's even still in the race, people will have forgotten that he's in the race. It just, it's just how our news cycle is. People forget things. They just forget. You know, we forget everything. Well, now, our, thanks to him, it's more Look, of a free-for-all even, than it always is. We even forgot what he was saying about Mexicans as soon as he said something about John McCain. That's how short our memory is. It's like, oh, my gosh, Donald Trump said something about John McCain. He, what about things he said about Mexicans? Me- I don't know. Did he say something? About, I don't know. It, it, it's just we, we just forget things. We're, we're, we're fickle people. Well, the one thing we didn't forget is talking about DVDs That's and right. Blu-rays because we got to do that, Wade. And you know what else is on right now? Start so me up, yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to just blow through this little stack right here. We've oh, got, you'll blow, all right. I will. Thank you. And, and no pun intended, but, uh, boy, that really was a bad segue because you, you, you have no idea what I'm even going to talk about. Um, the uh, this is a, a stack of gay and lesbian stuff, which I'm going to go through f- uh, in in uh, sort of in honor of Outfest, which is going on right now in L.A. So our good friend Alonzo, regular uh, guest of the show at uh, Christmas time, the expert on Christmas. Alonzo is one of the programmers over there. So a little shout out to Alonzo and Outfest. And um, a lot of this stuff, you know, the um, the whole subgenre of gay and lesbian film has evolved over the years. There's a lot of it is that is still very sort of stereotypical. You know, two guys, two hunky guys meet in a club and whatever. I'm not a gay man, so I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in any of the sort of uh, uh, intercultural things. I'm sure a lot of that has a certain appeal, but uh, does it cross over? Is usually my question. A lot of this stuff is really interesting from a cultural standpoint. A lot of uh, intercultural and multicultural stuff, which we will get to. Um, on the less interesting end, I'll just get this out of the way. Is a movie called Seek. Which is about a, it's, this is kind of the stereotypical thing. There's a gay guy. He's a newspaper writer, and he's doing a piece on a guy who uh, who, who basically um, promotes gay clubs and you know fill in the rest. It's like, okay, you know that's that's unremarkable. A little more interesting is uh, Eat With Me, which uh, George Takei has a cameo in. Uh, not a very good cameo, but oh it probably helped him get it. Uh, get it made. This is uh, this is actually an a- this is an Asian family in this one, and a, uh, a Chinese American uh, gay man who has a restaurant, and the restaurant's about to go under, and it's all about how this leads to a very interesting change of relationship with his mom. Uh, so it's a mother son thing. Monica Trait, uh, the German filmmaker, always very interesting. This is uh, of girls and horses. Um, not one of her best films. This is from Wolf, and but it's it's typically polished for all of her stuff. Basically about a uh, a, a girl who's a little bit of a, of a rebel who is sent uh, to a horse farm out in the middle of nowhere, and it there it kind of it turns into a love triangle of sorts, a lesbian love triangle. Again, not really challenging fare, but Monica Troit's always really interesting. She's got a she's got really good style. A uh, movie called, also from Wolf called Tiger Orange. Um, Tiger Orange is about a couple of guys, two brothers, who are both gay but went completely different directions. One of them went, you know, the full-on urban gay lifestyle. The other one really uh, lived his life very much in the closet and tried to sort of be more, um, live the more quote-unquote normal lifestyle. 
of a heterosexual man, and it's about how they come back together after a certain crisis has happened to one and how that affects their evolution as brothers, their relationship, how they look back on their lives. Really quite interesting, very well written. Uh, this one is called Gerontophilia. Now, Mark, when you hear the word Gerontophilia, what do you think? Um, it's somebody who has a fetish for Geronimo. <laughs> okay. Um, Gerontophilia... That's not what you thought I'd say. Uh, it? No, it's not. I thought you were actually going to go on and say, talk about fetish for old people, which is creepy enough. Nothing, nothing against old people, but, you know, old people should have fetishes for old people, not young people. Uh, in any case, that's exactly what this is, and uh, it's, it's described in its own... Uh, in its own press materials, as a reverse gay Lolita. That's, in other words, a young gay man who has a thing for an older gay man when he goes to work at an assisted living facility and and he helps the old guy get out on the lamb and then they have a bit of a relationship. I would almost say it's more of a gay Harold and Maude, kind of. But either way. That's good. Yeah, well, it's it's not funny and clever like Harold and Maude, but it is. It it it's, it tries a little too hard. I'll say that it tries a little too hard to be shocking and unusual and, and eccentric, but it, it's well acted. Uh, Hidden Away takes place in uh, uh, is, is essentially a um, a Spanish language film, and uh, the the thing here is it, it, there's, a, there's a cultural angle to this and I don't want to get too much into it because uh, it gives a lot away but, it, it, but it's, it's, it's interesting about it's essentially a, the evolution of a relationship between two young men of a certain cultural background which uh, you would not expect to see in a film of this sort so um, I'm not sure how much more I can really say about it without sort of exposing it but it's, it, 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 I'm surprised this hasn't gotten more notoriety than it has because it's, it, it, it really is kind of incendiary uh, from first run is a film called Eastern Boys. They always have boys in the title. I wish they'd stop doing that because it just plays to stereotypes. You know, it's just it's, it, it, don't 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 use boys in the in the title. Um, anyway, this one's a French film. It takes place at Gare du Nord, uh, which is the northern train station in Paris. There's a whole bunch of train stations in Paris for those who've been there, and it's a relationship between an older French man and a young Ukrainian man. Uh, which starts off kind of as a as a, uh, a, a sex for hire slash crime thing and becomes something very different. Not as good as it probably should be, but uh, it's got its moments. And then the last two here, we got one another one from First Run, She Must Be Seeing Things. This is kind of a big deal, actually. Um, this was made uh, in 1987, and it was kind of a, a crazy underground lesbian uh, film at the time, and it sort of endured... It's it's very low budget. Um, it, essentially, a story between uh, two women: one who's a lawyer, one who's a filmmaker, and uh, it all, in a very kind of minimalistic way, deals with their relationship as uh, it disintegrates after one of them reads the other one's diaries. Um, but really stylish, very sparse, low budget. Um, really an interesting film. It has a real cool '80s sheen to it. You know that '80s indie thing that we had going. Charlie Sheen? No, late, like a late '80s thing. It was Michael pretty, Sheen? Pretty cool. Not Michael Sheen. He's, he's cool. A, he's in a new movie, isn't he? I just read he got cast in something. He did get cast in something, he's and he's also in something. the uh, Showtime show, uh, the, the, the sex thing, Masters of Sex. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. We talked about Michael Sheen a few weeks ago because that did. guy gets it on. He does. He rules. He has hot girlfriends and wives. He's just the best. I have nobody. Well, anyway. 
And then Boys in Brazil, another one that uses the word boys. This boys is, from Brazil with Gregory Peck. This is from TLA. And, of course, uh, being gay in Brazil is, is considered it, – it's both – it is both incredibly accepted and incredibly taboo, depending on what part of the culture you, uh, you are slotted into. Uh, so in this case, there's the, it, it deals sort of with both ends of that. It's about a bunch of guys who are you know, not out, but they want to be out. They sort of feel like they need to be committed to being out. So it's about their year-long – uh, process of sort of getting them gearing themselves up for it. Very Brazilian, uh, and from a crossover standpoint, probably the most interesting of the bunch. So anyway, there is uh, that is our, our that is our contribution to Outfest this week. Yay! All right, Mark, let's uh, dive into some new movies. Am I close enough to the mic? Yes, you are. I am. You you are because I'm very comfortable right here. Then then because I'm for fat. It. Wait, here's the thing. I have to sit where like I have to sit exactly the way I'm sitting. Yes, because I'm fat. Okay, I do not fit in these pants. Okay. In fact, I've been I, all last week. I wore the same pair of jeans to work every single day because you didn't fit in any of the others. Because it fits me the best and makes me feel like I'm less fat than I am. Like I'm going out tonight, so I wore other pants, and these right. pants. Uh, I, I, in fact, guess what's on the table? My right. wallet, and my keys. Oh. I don't want them to be in my pockets, and it'll make me realize that I'm fat. So I just want to sit here with my empty pockets. And, and 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 like 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 my potbelly grandfather would just pull himself up to the table, right, and just talk. That's all I'm I want. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Okay, what do we got? Well, we have a uh, we have a new film from uh, Roland Joffe. Now, Roland Joffe, of course, oh, is one of the great gosh. filmmakers who has just fallen off the map. The First of all, fallen. he fell completely off the map, and then when he sort of started to do he, some films, yeah. none of them are very good. No, they're not. So now we have something called The Lovers, which stars uh, the equally disappeared Josh Hartnett. That's Wait, amazing. He I want was you almost to, Superman at one point, wasn't he? I want you to read read yeah. the three names on the bottom. Oh my no, 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 I have my finger over one of them. Oh. Uh, wow, really? <laughs> Bipashu Basu? Tamson Egerton? And Abhoy Dial? They, he made, they made that up. There, there, there are no people called... Bipashu, Basu, Tamson, Ed Egerton, and Abhay Diol. There's nobody named that. Uh-huh. He made that up. Anyway, this thing is this weird little lifeless phantasmagoria about uh, Hardnett plays a uh, archaeologist. He uh, gets into an accident, left brain dead, and while he's in a coma, he is transported back to India in the 1800s. And where he lives his whole adventure. Okay, so and, this is uh, this is this is. I mean, these are Indian actors. These are Indian actors. Correct. That you're, uh, you, you're named here. All right. So what you're saying is I should make fun of them? Yeah, probably not. Not uh, a good idea. Man. It actually sounds like an interesting idea. No, but... not not happening. Oh, go gosh. see the French Lieutenant's Woman. It's kind of the same. Or go see uh, uh, go see Jacob's Ladder. Yeah. Like all those films about guys who are in a coma or they're dead and they don't know it yet. Lame. Anyway. A little bit better is something that kind of fell under the radar called uh, "Set Fire to the Stars" from the good people at Strand. Uh, this is this stars Elijah Wood as a, a New York academic. This is he's actu- the guy who brought Dylan Thomas to America in real life. I, I actually like this. I, I like this movie. Um, I've got some interest. I, I, he, okay, let me let me get into this because I talked about this on, on radio. No, 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 no. Seriously, because um, here's the thing. This the, this is this is based on. The the actual book uh, that um, that John Brennan wrote about that whole Dylan Thomas episode, right? Like, that Will when you he... turn your phone off. What is going on? Sorry, I'll turn it off. I'll do it. Off it goes. You always tell me to turn my phone off. Yeah, you know it's a thing. 
I'm popular, what can I say? No, uh, John Brennan wrote a book about bringing uh, Dylan Thomas to America where he just, he was, you know, he was supposed to be here on this tour reading his poetry, but in between poems, he was just this unruly, irrepressible, crazy drunk, drunk, just partying and, you know, just completely wrecking his life. While he, meanwhile, he's got a family back in Wales, you know, it's just, it's just about what a disaster as a human being he was. And Brennan is, you know, trying to hold it all together. Elijah Wood, very good as Brennan. Um, but the the uh, the real revelation here is Selen Jones or Kellen Jones, however you I, I don't know how to pronounce it, who is a Welsh actor who is the spitting image of Dylan Thomas and has dreamed his whole life of playing Dylan Thomas. It's like he's obsessed with Dylan Thomas. He is actually Welsh. He looks like Dylan Thomas. It's almost like he's the reincarnation of Dylan Thomas. And he's wonderful. This guy, I've never seen him before in anything, not that I know of, but I think he's absolutely terrific. The whole thing's shot in black and white, and I will say this. Um, the uh, special features on here, which have some Dylan Thomas poems and you know deleted and extended scenes and stuff like that, um, it's fine. It's, it's not, nothing brilliant. But what's interesting about this film even though it's shot in black and white and it totally works and it's got that whole period sheen to it. And by the way, all the New York stuff shot in Wales. It's, they never went to New York. But the problem is it's shot in black and white video. It's shot in black and white like, you know, digital camera. It's digital. And it's shooting black and white digital versus shooting black and white film is totally obvious. It just feels like... Feels like video. Feels like video. Feels like they're forcing it. It, it doesn't carry you away the, like something like The Elephant Man or Annie Hall. It doesn't have that quality. So even though I know a lot of people are saying, oh, you can't really tell the difference between good digital and good film, when black and white at least, you can totally tell the difference. No way. Yeah. But you all like so, it. I like it, but I have a reservation. Res- uh, for dinner? Uh, no. Clouds of Sils Maria, it's an interesting film. It's uh, this film. Uh, it, it, you're hoping it's a film that gets Kristen Stewart out of the Twilight well, zone. It did because she, she won, won an award Cesar. for this. She, she won she, the Cesar. She was like the first. Was she the first non-French actress to win yeah. the Cesar? Yeah, it's crazy. So they're giving it to Kristen Stewart. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Doing your walking. It's crazy. It's crazy. Anyway, uh, well, you know what. The, the, this, this this film is almost like the European dreamier version of Maps of the Stars. Yeah. Right? Where you get like Julia Binoche plays this... Older actress. Plays an older actress who's kind of threatened by this young starlet who played by Chloe Moretz. And then uh, Stewart plays um, uh, Julia Binoche's assistant. And, you know, it, there's a lot of interesting kind of like, you know, backstage stuff going on. A lot of interesting stuff about aging, you know... Uh, Older, older women, not even necessarily actresses, just older women versus younger women. So it's kind of nice to see art and life intersect like that. Um, so I liked it, and I know a lot of people liked it too. It didn't really get, considering the cast, I thought it would get much more of a, 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 more of a release out of here. It, it really it, didn't. You know what? It was a very kind of uh, minor, it was like a minor thing. And we should point out this is an Olivier Assayas film who normally... And I like him a lot. I mean, he won... Didn't he win our foreign language yes. film two years in a row for, with Lafka? Uh, you won for... I forgot. Well, didn't he win for... It was it was for the... Was it the Christmas thing? I can't even it remember. Was the, it was the... Uh, I forgot. There, there was the, the Carlos the Jack... Didn't he? He did, the Car, he did Carlos, right? He did Carlos. And then... And that which is amazing. Oh, it was Summer Hours. Summer Hours. That was it. And it I was, don't you remember know, that. Christmas, summer. Christmas in the summer. I don't know. Anyway, no, but I mean, he's always been in the mix. He's just, but this feels like, this feels kind of like something he just did between other projects. Yeah, a little bit. Kind of, yeah. Uh, the, second, the second best exotic Marigold Hotel is the sequel to the, uh, another film called I, I The lo- Third <laughs> Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. 
I love the the best exotic marigold hotel. I really it's did. True, I this thing is very. Film. You know what? It's but very there's no point. Need, there's no need for a sequel. No. I don't know why they did. Well, this. if you like, if you like spending time with these characters, yeah. and I do, Judy Dench, what, Maggie Smith, Bill Nye. What I find funny is that they threw this time they threw uh, Richard Gere in the mix, and <laughs> and it's like, wait, really? Richard Gere is now old enough to be hanging out with the with that set? I guess so. I guess he is. <laughs> just he's does, old now. It's just strange. It'll happen to the best of us. Yeah. Dev Patel's in as he he's he's opening up a second resort, yeah. and all sorts of crazy complications that ensue. Um, not as good as the first one, not as fresh, not as surprising as the first one, but and some of it's a little bit clumsy. But you know what? I mean, uh, yes, it, and I, I miss Tom Wilkinson in it. I'll tell you, you can't. Here's the, here's the only reason this works is because you cannot put those actors in a movie and have it not be enjoyable on some level. I mean, Judy Dench can show up in anything and it's watchable. Anything. How about what we do in the shadows? Yeah, not so much. That's kind of weird. This thing got a little bit of attention out of Sundance. Yeah, though. I think it's lame. What we do in the shadows is uh, it's a it's kind of a funky little comedy ish dark vampire vampire thing. thing. Yeah. You know, it's um, there are these vampires and they are all roommates and they're being filmed in New Zealand for a documentary. I mean, come on. I know. I mean, I mean here. I mean here's here here's the pitch. Okay, get this: a bunch of vampires. <laughs> Are roommates, and they get—they're being filmed for a documentary in New Zealand. Wow! Here's one point five million dollars. Get it done. Horrible. Can we cast one of the guys from Flight of the Concords? You cannot. Uh, how about how about we cast the funny one, Jermaine Clemming? Can we put him in it? Will that make it worth shooting? You love that guy. I do. I think he's great, but he doesn't save this thing. No. He's, I mean, he's, he's the best thing about it, as he always is. But you know. uh, I'm not going to talk about The Longest Ride, because The Longest Ride is all about, um, is all about uh, uh, bull riding, and I'm against bull riding, because I think it's, uh, it's much crap, and I don't know why we continue to do it. It's like bullfighting. What's the point? Well, we need why don't you just take the bull out and just shoot him? I mean, he's going to die anyway. We need to have a way of trying to turn Scott Eastwood into a star. No, we don't. Not crap like this. It's terrible. <laughs> That's the only reason this movie got made is somebody said, "Hey, Clint Eastwood has got a son." Well, no, it's well, it's based on a Nicholas Sparks book. Yeah. So the, the the moment you say Nicholas Sparks Sparks book, it'll be as big as the Notebook. Well, no, because it winds up starring Britt Robertson and Scott Eastwood. And you know what? I'm sorry, but have can you name for me a a bull riding film that has ever done anything anywhere critically or at the box office? You cannot. Yeah. Yeah. Bull riding is lame and yes. needs to be uh, needs to be outlawed. I've never ridden a bull, so I don't really have opinions. I don't. Uh, I have not either, because um, I don't want to see a, a, a bull strung together by its balls to make it angry, and then you jump on it and try to. Uh, Is that what they do to it? Yeah. Really? I, I think the bull gets angry. I just thought bulls were naturally angry. No. Yeah. Uh, can't stand losing you. Surviving the police. Uh, I did not like this film, although I love the police and I love Sting and I love uh, the whole band. You know, the thing with the, the problem with the film is that it was narrated by Andy Summers, who, of course, was the uh, guitarist for uh, The Police. And, uh, you know, he just drones on and on, and it's kind of a little bit all about him. I wish somebody had sort of um, maybe taken a 5,000-foot view of the band and not just have Andy Summers do it. Um, so I was not really that impressed with it. It is based on his book called One Train Later. So only really hardcore police fans, which I'm a very much a police fan and I was very much looking forward to seeing this I just thought it just sort of droned on and on and on and uh, I was just not really that impressed with it not all that insightful you do get a couple of stories but again the stories are all told through one person's point of view and there's really no fun there The uh, there's a lot of good bonus features there's an audio commentary with Andy Summers 
there's a Q&A video from the L.A. Premiere and a photo gallery and whatnot. So if you like the police, which I do, you're going to have to like them a lot more to enjoy Can't Stand Losing You, not the definitive look at the police. Mm-hmm. Uh, wait, I have one more in my hand. It's called yeah. uh, Black. I, I couldn't get through this. I, it's, you know what? Here's the thing. This is a band. They're called the Black Veil Brides. Yeah. And their Blu-ray is called Alive and Burning. I'm yeah. Like, Let's face it. No one's gonna. No one's gonna rent this. No one's gonna buy it. It's just terrible. Well, not our age. I'm not really- anybody's age. Who's heard of these people? How, how can these people warrant the, the Blu-ray? I, you know what? It's uh, it's it, it, alive and burning. I mean, if that it's uh, you know, look, uh, all the all the old death metal guys from the '80s are too old now. So somebody, you know, I I, I I so get this. I I, I had my car repaired. Mm-hmm. Did, I, did I take on to an accident? No. What happened? Well, it, it was it was it was it was it's very embarrassing. And who did you hit? I, oh God, I would never hit somebody. That'd be horrible, she? huh? How old is she? Like hit on her or hit her? Well, both. Basically, it's a great way. This is to very. This is very embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's a one-car accident. Me uh-huh. being the car, and yeah. I pretty much. I'm only saying this to all the listeners of the Digigods, yeah. none of whom will call the police. Yes. I essentially now I didn't know I did it at the time. Yeah. Oh, here's the story. Oh dear. I'm making a right turn on a red light. And I make the right turn. Right turn on a red light. You can do that light. in California. Sure, you can. So I'm very upset. Woody Allen movies. I'm very upset. You know, I'm, 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 I'm agitated. I don't know why there's so much traffic on a Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. A lot of cars on the street on Ventura sure. Boulevard. It's, it's really pissing me off. So I decide to snake it and make that right turn on red light, even though there's a bunch of cars. Right. So I make the right turn gingerly, and I hear this noise, and I thought, did I just run over a bump? So I'm driving away. Yeah, not speeding away, just driving away. I look in my side mirror. There's no damage to my car. I look in my rearview mirror. There's nobody chasing after me saying, hey, man, you just ran over, you just ran over a baby. So I just figure, you know, it's probably just a bump or something, or maybe I swipe, swipe the curb or something. Get out of my car. There's a huge three-foot-long sheet metal gash between the back end of the um, door, uh, the passenger side door, between the back end of the passenger side door through the wheel well, like Holy over the cow. wheel well. So that what was did you hit. It, I believe I scraped a bus. I believe I scraped <laughs> a, the corner of a bus as I went around because it was a bus that I had to get around in order to make my right turn on red. So I think that I might have scraped the corner of the bus as I, I made my I, right turn on red. I can't say that I've ever heard of anything like that happening. Thank you. So $3,500. So the point being, I had to take my car in $3,500, right? $3,500 freaking dollars. And get this, Mark the idiot, I have not been in an accident in 10 years. I just, I don't get, I just have not. So this is the first accident I've been in in 10 years. I did not have car ins- uh, uh, car, rental car insurance as part of my car insurance. So I had to eat all of the rental car. Anyway, point being, where, where was this going? Oh, here's the thing. I, I, the guy I, I, who fixed my car, yeah. he was telling me about these uh, rock and roll cruises. Yeah. They go out of Miami, and there's one next year or later this year going mm-hmm. out of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And in these uh, rock and roll cruises, it's a three-day cruise, and it's you and like literally two dozen heavy metal bands from the 80s. Yeah. And it's like Dokken and Queensryche, and all these bands that had like, you know, three hits back in the day. And they all go on this cruise with you. There's four stages on this cruise ship. And everybody goes on the cruise ship, and there's four stages, and all these bands, like Extreme, they're Extreme, they all go on this cruise, and it's uh, very exciting. 
Very nice. Uh, how are we going <laughs> to... So that brings us to Dawkins. I somehow That's quite a detour of, we just so took. I reminded you of Dawkins by talking about Black Veil Brides alive and burning. All right, let's move there, on. Yeah, I, I wasted five minutes, Wait. Yeah, I, I wait. I wasted five minutes talking about this. Sweet. Wait, let's move their on. Their first ever recorded live performance. That's pretty great. Right here in L.A. During their successful Black Mass tour. Sweet. Well, what, okay, what, whatever you say. <laughs> All right, uh, let me uh, kick through some, uh, some classical stuff. The Waltz King by Johann Strauss in a wonderful performance from 2011 on this, uh, this import uh, from Naxos, which is really pretty, it's pretty great. I'm a huge fan of anything Strauss, any, any Waltz. And this is from the choir and ballet Der Seifertspiele Morbisch. Uh, no idea who they are, where they are, but they do a wonderful job. Uh, it's just great music. Anything, anything Strauss, anything Waltz. And the Waltz King is just an absolute delight. And then the Donizetti uh, opera Maria di Rohan, which I was otherwise unfamiliar with. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. In a in a great performance, also from 2011, recorded at the Teatro Donizetti in Bergamo. Oh, I, I, I've like been there. Every single little town in Italy has a world class opera. Kid you not? It's like it's it's crazy. Every one of them. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's my Chevy Chase. I, I rewatched Animal House last night. The whole thing. Did you really? Yes, I this rewatched it. So I, I went to this family party uh, last the night. The only thing that I remember really liking about that is is Belushi when he does his little sideways jump <laughs> each direction, and then uh, that so still slays me. It was a family thing, and for some reason the adults, not me, wanted to watch Animal. Not that I don't love Animal House, but the adults wanted to watch Animal House, even though this party included a 13 year old and two 16 year olds. Mm. Now Animal House, I don't know if maybe you've just seen Animal House on TV, but let me say something. Animal House, <clears throat> it is rated R. And there's a reason for that. So let's just say that the 13-year-old needed to have her eyes covered when they came out with the sex toys. By the way, Animal House? Yeah. Really good. It's, it can use about 10 minutes taken out of it. Probably. It, probably. Doesn't have the, it doesn't have the pacing of a modern comedy, which sure. we're almost not used to it anymore. Yeah. You know, like stuff happens, there's establishing shots, and scenes take mm-hmm. a couple minutes to play out. You, you don't, can't do that anymore. By the way, speaking of modern comedies, yeah. do you see Trainwreck? Trainwreck. Not yet. Hilarious. I hear, I hear really mixed So up. funny. No, funniest thing ever. Okay. Loved it. Loved it. All right. Well, I will take Train your wreck. word for it. Thank you. Take your word. Train wreck. Loved it. Uh, we got black and white ballets, courtesy of the uh, Netherlands Dance Theater and choreographer Yuri Killian, which is a series of uh, really cool ballets to you know, various, uh, various performances, all of them from the 90s. Uh, you got Bach and Mozart and, and Weber, and, and it's, it's great stuff. You're really seeing this if you're a, a Yuri Killian fan. If you don't know who your Achillean is, the Blu-ray will mean nothing to you. Uh, a couple of great box sets here. Uh, this is from Opus Arte, William Shakespeare, Comedy, Romance, Tragedy. It's got uh, all of these as performed at the Shakespeare Globe Theater. All of them on Blu-ray in one great box set, As You Like It, Love's Labor's Lost, and Romeo and Juliet. Uh, just terrific. Really, really terrific. Uh, I mean, you know, just that's, 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 that's a keeper if you're a Shakespeare fan. Uh, we also have a couple of Donizetti again. We're on to the back on Donizetti. Classic comedies, Le Miser d'Amore and Don Pasquale. Uh, both very funny and uh, really nicely performed. This is also from Opus Arte. Um, also on Blu-ray. We've got uh, BBC uh, Unitel Classica from the BBC Proms, the Uni- UNESCO Concert for Peace with performances of Strauss, Mahler, and uh, Panufnik who I've never heard of. 
but uh, conduct. It's, this is this is really a you know this is a this is a, a concert documentary is maybe the best way to put it. Uh, but really, it's wonderful. It's uh, you know you got a concert on the one hand, and then you got a documentary called From War to Peace on the other, which is. Uh, where you spend time with uh, George Schulte and Valery Gergiev uh, on the 20th anniversary for the founding of the World Orchestra for Peace. Uh, and then the last four here, the ongoing Mahler set from C Major and Unitel Classica. This is uh, Mahler Symphonies 9 and 10, conducted uh, by Pavel Yarvi, the uh, Finnish... Com- Pavel Chekhov? Pavel Yarvi, the Finnish conductor for the Frankfurt Radio... Oh, he's finished, all right. Pavel Yarvi is great. Dude. Oh, he's the best. Uh, you just you're, you're such See, a, so far on the show you've talked about gay cinema and opera. You're such a is, is there, are there two less? Uh, do, for, you know, we're, we're getting to women's soccer later. <laughs> Have I mentioned we're world champs again? Yes. That was like four weeks ago. I, I, I'm still in my afterglow. Give me a break. Uh, Richard Strauss uh, performed at the uh, Teatro Massimo uh, Feuersnot. You want to make a joke about that? Fire snot. You got Too some easy. snot joke. Too, Too easy. easy. Too easy. Okay, uh, that's really good. If you're a Ricard Strauss fan, uh, and then the last two Blu-rays, Mark Morris Dance Group, L'Allegro Il, Pan- Il Penseroso ed Il Moderato. How's that for mutilating the uh, the uh, the Italian language? Uh, choreogra- choreography by Mark Morris. Uh, music by Handel. They all performed again at the Teatro Real. Um, beautiful. This is in uh, Madrid, of course, and uh, really just fantastic choreography, beautifully done, beautiful lighting and, and stage direction, the whole thing. And then once more, back to the uh, Netherlands Dance Theater and Yuri Killian. Uh, this is a, from Art House Music. This is Sinfonietta, Symphony in D, and Stamping Ground. Uh, more just terrific dancing, you know, for fans of Killian. Can't get, uh, it just doesn't get any better. I'm a fan of Killian. I thought you would. Killian's like a great name for like a villain in a film. There's been a film with a guy named Killian. Yes. I know there has. Yes, of course there has. My Beautiful Laundrette, directed by Stephen Frears. It's a great film, a landmark film of British cinema in the mid-80s. As long as we're on the, you know, Outfest gay thing, because that's essentially, this was one of the first breakthrough new queer cinema type films. Even though it's not technically part of that new queer cinema scene, it really was sort of part of that moment. So good. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, folks, this is his breakout role. He plays a uh, a skinhead, and uh, he's, uh, you know, he's hanging out with this uh, Pakistani guy from South London, decides to open up a, a laundromat so that his family will be proud of him. And uh, you know, it's a comedy. It's a love story. It's uh, it's it's a slice of, of of life in London in the mid '80s. This thing was really, I don't know if I'd call it transgressive, but it was definitely. I don't know. I think you can probably call this a little bit transgressive at the time. It was. Don't you sure. think? I mean, there's Absolutely. a lot of social realism in here, sure. but it's still funny, and uh, it's great. And Stephen Frears, you know, he for 30 years that guy has just been the best man. That guy. I mean, so you 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 literally have to look at like now. Okay, not that every Stephen Frears film is mm-hmm. as good as this director I'm about to mention. Yeah. When it comes like quality output over the years, like Billy Wilder is like. Again, not that he's done super classics like Billy Wilder, but in terms of just like constant quality output over the decades, you don't get much better. You don't. Freer's look, he's had his his hits and misses like anybody else, but it's just a work as a craftsman, you know? He he doesn't really like talking about what he does because he just he doesn't like the awards or anything. To him, it's like he gets up and he goes to work and he makes movies and then he goes home and you know he has TV dinner and whatever. He, but he's very much about it. Seriously, he's all about the work. He's not about the glamour or the money or anything else. He's a working class Brit, you know. He's he's a guy who came up to the whole kind of left wing working class British thing, 
and uh, he, he has he waxes very philosophical on his background because I was not a fan of his originally. Uh, you know, things like My Beautiful Laundrette, Sammy and Rosie Got Laid. I was not a fan of his at the time. I was like, this guy is making the kind of British films I don't want to see. You know, he's just making really raw, gritty, I, I'm a Downton Abbey kind of guy. Take me back to David Lean. But what's interesting is that Frears, over the course of his career, moved kind of in that direction, but without losing his roots. So you get things like Mrs. Henderson Presents, which is about as, as polished as can be, as elegant and classically British and period and the music and the whole thing. And the Queen? But it's still transgressive. Yes, you know it is. I mean? It still has that... Somehow he found a way to, to bring those two ends of British cinema, those, those opposing, those diametrically opposed ends, and to sort of make it compatible. And, and I think that will be his legacy. I think people will eventually look at him and say... This guy, somehow he reached out and he grabbed the Alan Clark end of, of British cinema and, you know, the, 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 the Mike Lee end of things. The, and he, he got hold of all of that stuff and he pulled it to the middle and he connected it to uh, David Lean and the Cordas and that whole classic instinct from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And somewhere in there, that, that's, that's a magical thing. So I, I tip my hat to him. I just wonder if you can, if you can compare him I'm sort of. I'm, I, I don't know that I believe this analogy, but I'm working it out in my head as I say it. You compare him to City Lumet, yeah. in that he works True. very clean and very simple. Like Lumet and Frears, they're not super visual craftsmen. They're just they, they just they they're the simple and they get it done, and it's yeah. always good. And then they're very much of their city. That's it, right? Yeah, I think it might be something there. All right, and a few. I'll just na- uh, knock off real quickly. Uh, some interesting stuff here. One from First Run Features. This is a film called Committed. Totally had never heard of this before. They, they call this a true enough story about Francis Farmer. Now, of course, it's the Jessica Lange Oscar-nominated performance as Francis that I most recall and I think most people remember, um, which is a wonderful film, a brilliant film, uh, which was made the same year as Tootsie, which she won the Oscar that year for Tootsie, but not for Francis, which is kind of weird. Um, but uh, this is from 1984, believe it or not. It is a low-budget a uh, gritty black and white film only 75 minutes long made with next to no money that clearly because I've never heard about it and um it is it's obviously not the Jessica Lang film but it is it's a really it's a really interesting almost experimental quasi student film and um if if you you know I would almost recommend that you have it alongside the Jessica Lang film because they're kind of complementary in a weird way and uh, then we've also got a couple here from uh, MGM, the limited edition collection, which is released through 20th Century Fox as part of their, um, uh, their uh, manufacturer on demand line, the MODs. These are DVD-Rs. One is called Nana, which was a uh, Golan Globus Canon production from uh, 1983. And uh, this is when they were trying to be a little bit more legit. They were trying to get away from all the Chuck Norris stuff and all the ninja stuff and actually sort of do what Weinstein eventually, what the Weinsteins eventually did with Miramax, which is say, hey, look, we're, we're legit. Never really worked for them because they're cheese balls. But uh, this is actually somewhat sort of respectable. Um, some interesting uh, foreign talent in this thing. And uh, it's a period film. It takes place in Paris and it's a little bit, you know, risque. It's a little bit of a, a little bit of a trashy, you know, uh, kind of a. I don't want to call it softcore, but it's a little bit of a sort of a trashy uh, 
sex romp romance in Paris period thing but it, it's done classy enough that it sort of feels respectable and then uh, this thing is completely just freaked out this is from 1990 it's a movie called Mom which was produced by uh, Cassian Elwes who of course is Carrie Elwes' brother and a big agent in town and now a producer was an agent for a long time now he's kind of an independent producer um, and uh, this is just completely off the wall um, uh, this is a monster movie of the most bizarre type. This is about a an old woman who, who lives in a shoe. No, this is about an old woman who lives in a shoe. Mom, she's mom. She's an old woman uh, who is essentially a a cannibalistic monster. What mother isn't? You know, and. Um, it's 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 the whole angle is through is is her relationship with her son, and I'm not quite sure how to actually explain this whole thing because, uh, you know, he loves her. He doesn't want to see her like destroyed because she's a threat to humanity, but she must be. It's very weird, tongue in cheek uh, kind of ex- quasi exploitation film stuff, um, written and directed by a guy named Patrick Rand who honestly has done nothing since, and I think that probably has uh, a lot, this has a lot to do with it. Uh, Wade, there was a movie. <laughs> the Q-Men? <laughs> the D-Women? I like the X-Men films. I, I, I think they're... Um, not, not, the, not, the, not the third one, that's just... Which that's, one was that? That's the one directed by... Uh, oh, Brett Ratner? Yeah. Well, you know what? Though, look, Brett Ratner now runs Rat Pack with that guy who's dating uh, 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 Mariah Carey. And they're financing some great yeah, stuff. Yeah, they look, really are. I'm fine with it. Look, if he wants to be a guy who pulls together financing for movies that other people direct and do a good job of, by all means do it. Exactly. Just please don't direct them yourself. Exactly. That's all I ask. So uh, X-Men Days of Future Past, I enjoy the film very much. Uh, I think the X-Men films are pretty much the only non-Marvel... The, 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 the most satisfying... Marvel films not made by Marvel Studios, I think. Now, of course, it's a pretty low bar, but still, I, I do legitimately enjoy uh, the last two X-Men films. Now, here we have X-Men uh, Days of Future Past, the Rogue Cut. Now, the reason why this is called the Rogue Cut is because, as was famously uh, uh, noted on uh, social media many uh, moons ago, Rogue was uh, a pretty medium-sized part of Days of Future Past and got completely cut from the film. And this cut, the rogue cut, restores all of her scenes. Uh, there's about 10 minutes of stuff, including there's a, there's a prison break in there. And so for that, I have to say that uh, it's kind of worth it. I mean, it, it doesn't make the film any better. It just It's a, just a, almost like a little curio for those who enjoy the Days of Future Past uh, film, which I do. So uh, I don't know that I, I again, I, I found the new scenes great because it was new stuff that I hadn't seen before. And it was nice to see Anna Paquin, uh, you, know, uh, you know, get some love. Uh, finally, after being cut, and there's a lot of controversy as to why she was cut. Brian Singer had originally said it was only one scene, yeah. but it turns out that there's a lot more than one scene in this road cut. So I don't know what Brian Singer was talking about. Maybe trying to put a spin on it. So um, otherwise, uh, it's the same film and a good film. There's two discs here. The second disc contains a nine-part making of a documentary. And uh, it's good stuff. I, I, I recommend um, X-Men Days of Future Past, the Rogue Cut. Brilliant. Brilliant. All right, we got some Olive titles now. Olive uh, licenses and releases a lot of great stuff now every month. They just keep killing it uh, with their, their the stuff they keep seizing from Paramount and other catalogs. And we got some really, really interesting stuff this month. Um, 
Richard Dix and Gail Patrick in one from the uh, the Paramount Library, as much of their stuff is. This is from 1939, that amazing year where even if you dig down to the second set of 100 films released that year, you find good stuff. And this is decent. This is really a, n- a nice little rediscovery. Uh, this is the story of Sam Houston, played by Richard Dix, who is, you know, the guy basically he, the, the city of Houston is named after. But he was like the godfather of Texas. He's like the George Washington of Texas. Uh, and uh, this is based on an actual Pulitzer Prize winning biography that was written by Morris James. And uh, it's a very good one. Uh, it, you know, this thing could easily have been, you know, one of the top ten films of any other year if it weren't 1939. And then, uh, I, you know, Sterling Hayden. My mother was quite nearly Sterling Hayden's uh, nanny at a certain point and, and, uh, until my, my father, who she was then dating, said, mm, he's a little unstable. And so that didn't happen, um, fortunately for me. Anyway, 1955, a Sterling Hayden movie called uh, The Eternal Sea. And, uh, you know, you can tell he's just that crackpot, crazy, crusty old madman who we will eventually learn to uh, completely go nuts over in, uh, in Dr. Strangelove. Uh, but, of course, even before that, you know, in movies like Kubrick's The Killing, he was, uh, he, he was on the ball. Anyway, this is basically based on the life of uh, Rear Admiral John Madison Hoskins. And uh, it's a naval movie. It's just a straight-up great naval, you know, uh, tough guy military movie from 1955. Uh, but you're really watching it just for Sterling Hayden. Wait, uh, there was a director. His name was John Sayles. Where, where has he gone? I don't know. He's he horrible. Like, the 80s and the 90s, especially like up to about, I mean, prior to 2000, honestly, until George W. Bush became president, he was making great movies. And then somehow... Coincidence? Bush, I think not. No, the Bush presidency like got him so off kilter that he hasn't made a good movie since. You know what? His, his films have become just these harangues about uh, uh, liberal this and uh, Bush that and mining, coal mining, union crap. He's insufferable. He's gone completely insufferable. But before all that happened, oh, you had Baby, It's You. And uh, Baby, It's You, written and directed by John Sayles, uh, produced by Griffin Dunn. This is with uh, Rosanna Arquette and uh, Vincent Spano. And, uh, you know, it's this romantic drama. It takes place in New-, in New Jersey in the 60s. And, uh, you know, it's this girl who's uh, drawn to this blue-collar, kind of a tough guy, bad boy, you know. Um, and it's played film. by Spano. It's a sweet I film. Really love this Although you know what, I have to say, I I I, I did rewatch Return of the Sakakas Seven. Return of the Sakakas Seven was sort of the yeah. big chill of its day. It, but that but, it, but that movie not that movie does not hold up. No, because it the was, big chill holds up. The big chill holds up. But the Return of the Sakakas Seven, he shot for, on sixteen millimeter in like a day and a half with a crew of three people. Yes, I mean it, it, it was it was the ultimate indie at the time, and people that was before you had digital cameras and any of that stuff, and it was people were like, wow, you really how you how you throw this together? because movies cost money. Now they don't really cost money. Now you can you know, take your iPhone out and make a movie in, in a day and a half and it costs nothing. So at the time, that was a big deal. Uh, here's a very interesting failure from um, Frank Pearson. Frank Pearson, very famous uh, screenwriter. Used to, used to be a neighbor. Huh? Used to be a neighbor. I'd see, him, I'd see him like every two or three days. Dog day afternoon. Yeah. Used to see Frank Pearson all the time. He's a man. All the time. Yep, he's great. Yeah, he was president of the uh, Writers Guild for a long. Wasn't he president of the Writers yeah. Guild for a long time? Yeah. Um, anyway, this is a film called um, King of the Gypsies. This film was from 1978, and it's all about the gypsy community and uh, the criminal uh, goings on in the gypsy community. Very interesting film, shot by Sven Nyqvist. Eric Roberts makes his film debut. Get this cast. This is 1978. Get the cast: Susan Sarandon, Annie Potts from Ghostbusters, nice. Annette O'Toole, Brooke Shields, and ladies and gentlemen, Sterling Hayden.
Just can't get enough of our Sterling Haynes. Along with Shelly Winters. Nice. Anyway, uh, King of the Gypsies, again, it's all about uh, the gypsy underworld. And, uh, you know, I did like this film. I think it's uh, this might be due for rediscovery. It's, it, it's interesting. I mean, it, I don't know. That, it, Eric Roberts had a moment there. Uh, uh, go ahead. Finish that one. Wait, I'm talking. Go ahead. Sorry. Did not mean to interrupt you. Unbelievable. What the hell? Jerry Schatzberg, uh, who was a, uh, a noted director from the 70s, uh, he tried to keep his uh, career going into the uh, late 80s with a little movie called Street Smart. This movie kind of kind of had a little thing going on at the time. People talked about it. Yeah. Christopher Reeve, uh, he plays a, a magazine uh, reporter, and he makes up a story about prostitution that winds up like reinvigorating his career. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, one of the pimps that he wrote about, played by Morgan Freeman. The two of them sort of collide. A lot of drama there. Won't give it away because it's actually really good. It needs to be rediscovered. Jerry Schatzberg um, directed like uh, Panic in Needle Park. Right, with Al Pacino. Yeah, great film. And a lot of good films like that from the era. Schatzberg, you know what? I, 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 I you know. It, this is, this, this movie is sort of known more as the movie that made people stand up and take notice of Morgan Freeman. He got yeah. his first Oscar nomination out of this. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a late life thing. I mean, he was, you know, what, early 50s, late, late. 40s. Same as Sam Jackson. Look, Sam Jackson was in like Do the Right Thing. Uh, in, uh, Sam Jackson yeah, was do the, do the right thing. thing. And you, where'd he come from? Yeah, he was yeah. like in his forties at the time or something. Yeah, it's true. It wasn't until uh, the, uh, the the Wesley Snipes thing. What was the um, the interracial romance thing? That oh yeah, the Jungle Fever. Jungle Fever. That's the one that really put him because he won the sporting actor at Cannes for Jungle Fever. So. Uh, two more wait. I got uh, from Martin Campbell, a, a director who I do enjoy. I like his action stuff. However, this one is a little bit more subdued. This is um, a little thing called Criminal Law, which uh, from nineteen eighty nine. This is one of those films that like. Studios like Orion in like the late 80s or mid 80s, early 90s, they made a thousand of these sorts of films. But it's got a good cast, uh, Gary Oldman and Kevin Bacon. Uh, Gary Oldman plays this Boston attorney, and he's got a wealthy client in a murder case, and uh, kind of all goes from there. You know, again, all these films used to star like Bruce Willis and, and Kim Basinger and Alec Baldwin. They made a million of these things. Is this one any better? Not really. Written by Mark Kazins, that's kind of cool, but... Um, Otherwise, uh, yeah, uh, if, if you like Martin Campbell, and I do like Martin Campbell, uh, his action stuff like Casino Royale and GoldenEye, the James Bond stuff is much better than this. Sweet. Finally, we have Wild Thing. Uh, it makes my heart sing. Of course it does. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's kind of an updated Tarzan story, a little bit silly. Kathleen Quinlan uh, stars as, uh, obviously, I Jane. Kathleen Quinlan. I know. She, she used to date Al Pacino. Really? Yeah. I used to think she was cute. She was cute in uh, in uh, uh, Twilight Zone the movie. Wasn't she in Twilight Zone? Oh, Remember that? Yeah, she plays the guy with the cornfield guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the cornfield guy. The cornfield kid. <laughs> I'm gonna send you to the cornfield. No. Anyway, uh, Kathleen Quinlan plays. Yes, it was. Plays a uh, Jane, and uh, she winds up uh, being attracted to this guy called the Wild Thing, played by Robert Nepper, who's like I don't know. Never heard of him again. Um, anyway, so he's uh, Robert Nepper plays this guy named Wild Thing, and he's like this vigilante who goes out to like Batman and uh, and secures justice uh, on his own terms. And uh, she falls for him, and uh, there you go. It is a thing. Thing with the only thing I will say, it's a little better than the normal mm-hmm. because it does have a script by John Sales. Fantastic. So there's some stuff going so on. So we there. got a little sales love this week. Yes, we do. Good deal. All right. Uh, and then here's my stack of olive titles. We got uh, the amazing, the brilliant, the wonderful, the memorable, immortal 1979 cinematic pile of poop, Roller Boogie. 
Uh, did you see Roller Boogie in 1979? At Mark? the time, sure. <laughs> and you like, and you, so you don't like that, but you like Xanadu. <laughs> well, it's the same year. Uh, they came out basically the same year. Xanadu is 1980. Uh, Xanadu is awesome. This is just terrible. Uh, Jim Bray, who's like this real life Roller Boogie guy, who had some notoriety that lasted uh, really about as long as his as his rainbow suspenders. Um, he stars with Linda Blair who can't roller skate to save her life in this very, very silly uh, romantic comedy that is... Uh, no, nothing in here makes sense. I mean, it just really... It's just it's absurd top to bottom. The whole... You know, she's, uh, she's going to Juilliard to be a, a classical musician, and he's a roller boogie dude, and, you know, the rest of it is just how he liberates her. Oh, it's a rock and roll disco. And I love the music, but my goodness, it's an embarrassing film. Uh, anyway, that's on Blu-ray uh, from Olive. And then the last three from our little olive uh, stack here, Mick Jagger and Ned Kelly. Now, you might remember, Ned Kelly is a legendary Australian outlaw who has been you know, in movies numerous times, all the way back to the silent era. The first Ned Kelly film is like the first ever Australian silent film. That's how, you know, in the early days when somebody finally got a hold of a camera in Australia and said, eh, what are we going to do with our camera? We've got to make a movie. Let's make it about Ned Kelly. Uh, that's there you go. It, that's I'm not how, commenting on your Australian accent. You know what? I actually used that in Hong Kong when I was buying a uh, I was buying some uh, electronics there, and and my wife made fun of me at the time too. She said, "You're not fooling anyone." I said, "No, they'll take advantage of Americans, but they won't take advantage of Aussies because they're just they're, they they get them all the time." So I was I used an Australian accent in the uh, in the Chimchat Choi uh, tech stores when I was buying some stuff. So and it worked. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I got ripped off or not, but you know, I, I figured I might as well, you know, give it a shot. Okay, what would you buy? Anyway, I, you know, what did I buy? Exactly. I bought uh, exactly. I think I bought my mini disc recorder at the time. Yeah, how'd that work out? It's great. It's obsolete now, <laughs> <laughs> but I got a great deal on it. Anyway, so the the most recent Ned Kelly film you might remember was the one that that starred uh, the uh, Joker, uh, Jared Leto. No, the other uh, joke. The, other, the Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger, thank you. <laughs> uh, Heath Ledger played Ned Kelly in a, in a fairly recent film, and um, before he was the Joker, obviously. But uh, this one is a Tony Richardson film with Mick Jagger, which tells you it's a little bit tweaked, and it is. It's got that whole uh, angry young man British thing going, and uh, it, it, you know this was made in 1970, so it's a little psychedelic and weird and funky in ways that just you, you would never imagine would make any sense. Music by Waylon Jennings. Um, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, it dates in a very strange way, but it's interesting. So anything Tony Richardson, anything Mick Jagger is certainly worth checking out. Adventures of Captain Fabian with Errol Flynn. Is uh, Errol Flynn in, in 1951 desperately sort of trying to be the swashbuckler that he once was? And uh, this is set in 1860 New Orleans. He is not the man that he was in the 30s, make no mistake about it. But he gives it a good shot. He still has those rugged good looks, and he's, it's not bad. Uh, Vincent Price is also in this thing, as is Agnes Moorhead. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a nice backdrop. It's just too bad that you, you, you look at him and you just go, you know what, you're... It's just not working for me anymore. And then, lastly, uh, Hell's Five Hours is a uh, is a pretty decent noir from 1958 uh, with Vic Morrow, very young Vic Morrow, as long as we're talking about people who were in Twilight Zone. 
And uh, it's, uh, I'd say, you know, if you're a noir fan, it's certainly worth a rental at least, maybe even worth having on the the shelf. It's got a a real gritty kind of 50s crime thing going on. So uh, that's also a Paramount film from uh, from back in the day. Uh, written directed by a guy named Jack Copeland, who I'm you know, only vaguely familiar with. Kind of a semi-minor director of the day. And then we've got, uh, we've got a few films from Twilight Time here, uh, who has a great batch this month. Uh, really an unbelievable bunch. These films, of course, are available at screenarchives.com. And they are limited releases. There's only 3,000 copies apiece of each Blu-ray. And they all come with isolated scores. And that, for me, is a big deal on this one, which is The Fabulous Baker Boys, which I... I love so this movie. It's a great film. I unreservedly love this film. I agree, 100%. I love, 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 it. love this film. Love and it, I, too. To, to, uh, for the life of me, I don't know why Steve Clovis has not really had a career. Because he, he... No, he, he wrote all the, um, the, I know, the Harry Potter crap. I know, but... But he didn't direct them. I know. He's done nothing of his it, it, own. I mean, I, he's just become like a screenwriter for hire. I know. And it's like, no, make a movie like this again, I would know. you please? I know, so good. Please. Love it. Be that guy. He was supposed to be an auteur, an American auteur. Nope. And he's just, you know, come on. I mean, come on. I love this the, film. The, Great film. The Bridges Brothers, Michelle Pfeiffer in a red dress on a piano. I know, can't come beat on. it. It's the best. This movie is so good. I love it. It's on Blu-ray. I could not be happier. Great special features, the isolated score and effects track, uh, a great audio commentary with Clovis and um, Julie Kirgo and Nick Redman as film historians. Um, also a commentary with Michael Ballhaus, the uh, cinematographer. Deleted scenes in a trailer. Must, must, must own this one. A way to a great little film starring uh, Peter Sellers from back in the day. This is The World of Henry Orient. This was uh, directed by George Roy Hill. Who, of course, did uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and uh, World of Corn and Garp, a lot of other, a lot of films like that. But uh, this stars uh, Peter Sellers. Anyway, it's adapted from a book. It's uh, it's it's kind of a comic drama, right? Yeah. So uh, it's about um, these two Manhattan schoolgirls, and they wind up having a crush on this pianist. Don't go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This pianist, and he's uh, played by Peter Sellers, and Peter Sellers is hilarious. He's he's arrogant. He's funny. He's a horrible pianist, and uh, he's just great. It's such a great character, and these girls, uh, in interacting with these two girls, sort of draws out the characters. So you get a real sense of what Henry Orange is like, and where he where he uh, grew up, and what he's all about. So. I cannot recommend enough The World of Henry Orient. If you are not familiar with Peter Sellers or if you're only familiar with him through the um, uh, Inspector Clouseau films, I would definitely check out The World of Henry Orient. It is just a really sassy, cool, funny, droll, hilarious, weird, little cool film. Love it. World of Henry Orient. Thank you, Twilight Time. And uh, three more from Twilight Time, all of them just absolutely superb. Uh, Julie Kirgo and Nick Redman also do a commentary on this one, which is great. I mean, it's really great. This is A Month in the Country. Everybody's forgotten about A Month in the Country. Can, I mean, I, I, I got this, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's right. Back in 1987, when I didn't know who either of them were, uh, Kenneth Branagh and... Um, Millie Mel Steve? No, Kenneth Branagh and Colin Firth were in a movie together. Like they, played World, they played World War I veterans in a movie together. I'm like, oh my gosh, Colin Firth and Kenneth Branagh were in a movie together. And somehow that was like, it hit me like a revelation again. I'd just totally forgotten it. They're both wonderful. I mean, nobody knew, nobody really, they, they were sort of off the grid. I mean, they were on the grid in England. They were off the grid here. Everybody, you know, they were kind of coming out of a certain young, 
hot young actor scene there, and uh, it's it's just lovely. I mean, it really is lovely. Uh, so this is um, this is you know definitely worth checking out. Classic from 1987, directed by Pat O'Connor. Um, I am so thrilled that this movie's out. The best of everything has really fallen off of everybody's track, uh, off of everybody's roadmap uh, in recent years. This is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful classic Jean Negulescu film uh, that was one of the early and very rare acting endeavors for Robert Evans. He shows up in this thing as, as an actor, and uh, he's okay, you know, but you're, you're like, make that man a studio chief. Get him off the screen. No, this is, uh, this is a lot of fun. This takes place in a 1950s era publishing house where Joan Crawford is the uh, absolutely horrible boss uh, over three young women played by Hope Lang, Diane Baker, and Susie Parker. And uh, it's, just, it's just a wonderful slice of 1950s kind of kitsch style done beautifully with a great Alfred Newman score, which, of course, you get as an isolated score track. Uh, really great. And uh, Rona Jaffe and Sylvia Stoddard do the audio commentary here. Rona Jaffe, of course, who wrote the novel that this is based on. But the, uh, the, the, the score, the Newman score, is just classic 1950s stuff. It's great. And then the last one, one of my favorite films of the last 30 or some odd years, I would have to say, um, Places in the Heart, which I just think is a, an absolutely wonderful film, the Robert Benton classic. Uh, with Sally Field and, and then very unknown John Malkovich and Danny Glover, who both just really just lit up the screen beautifully. John Malkovich playing blind and doing a great job of it. Um, Robert Benton, of course, was sort of in his prime. He, you know, he, this was not too many years after Kramer versus Kramer, and uh, this is just a beautiful film. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, Nestor Almendros, the, the great Spanish cinematographer, just absolutely cleans the screen brilliantly. And uh, edited, I would point out, by the amazing Carol Littleton, who, of course, also cut E.T., one of the great editors of all time. So this is a classic uh, isolated score track. Uh, audio commentary with Sally Field and Nick Redman, which is wonderful, and a beautiful Blu-ray transfer. So, so thank you, Twilight Time. Hooray! Twilight Time is just, they're knocking it out of the park here. The best of British comedy, Wade. Uh, if you like British comedy, this is a good one. Wish it was on Blu-ray, though, but... Um... Got a bunch of uh, people like Dudley Moore, Peter Sellers, Benny Hill, John Cleese, Peter Cook, Spike Milligan. I have to say that um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this, Wade. I'm, I'm just, you know what, maybe I'm just in a bad mood today. British humor, lame. Oh, no. It's all lame. No, it's you know lame. what? I've decided that... Uh, uh, um, you're, not a, you're not a Faulty Towers fan? I've decided that... I've never seen it. Uh-huh. I've decided that Monty Python is stupid. Okay, I get it. The parrot's no, dead. It's no. dead. It's not dead. It's great. No. Who cares? No. Who cares? No. Yes. No. Yes. No, it's great. No, it's not. It What's is. great about it? Uh, Gavna, and then he just laughs. Burglar. Who is it? Uh, it's a burglar. No, you're not. You're a salesman. You're going to try and sell me something. No, I'm a burglar. I promise. Just let me in. I'll take a few things, and I'll be gone out of your way. No, you're not. You're a burglar. You're trying to sell me something. No, just let me in. I promise you I'm not. All right. Hi, I am a salesman. I'm sorry. Come on. That's funny. It takes right. about 30 seconds, and it's hilarious. All right. That's funny. Anyway, uh, three hours of stuff from uh, across the pond. So really, if you love British humor, you can't beat the best of British comedy from the good folks at Mill Creek. We also have the 70th anniversary of A Song to Remember. This is um, so weird. This, uh, this was never one of my favorite um, black and white ditties, but uh, it does have a good cast. Paul Muni and Merle Oberon. Uh, ask your grandparents. Mm-hmm. Cornwall plays uh, Frederick Chopin. So it's a biopic of Frédéric Chopin, and yep. uh, you know what? I, I'm sure Frédéric Chopin uh, led a very interesting life, but he did not make for a very interesting film. Uh, it was nominated for six Oscars, I have to say, So, but not for film. So there you go. 
So uh, there you go. Anyway, not a big fan of that film. But um, Mad Love is one of those, um, you know, it's one of those kind of, not lovers on the run. I but uh, <laughs> I like Chris O'Donnell and Drew Barrymore. It's Antonio Bird. Like Antonio Bird directed this. Oh. It's Chris O'Donnell and it's Drew Barrymore and they fall in love. And uh, it's one of those like on the love, you know, road trip stories. And it's just... All you need to know about, about how stupid this film is is just the, the cover. Look at look, 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 Drew Barrymore, you know, leaning out the convertible. Yeah, I know. It's one of those. It's movies. just one of those terrible films. She, Bird was trying to do, she was trying to have a career at the time, a Hollywood career. It didn't work out. Wait, I, 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 I know what you're thinking to yourself. You know, Helen Mirren, you know, the queen. Yeah. Helen Mirren has been 65 years old for about 30 years now. Oh, no, no. Let me tell you something. If you want to know how oh, smoking yeah. hot Helen Mirren was, oh, yeah. we have your evidence. And oh, we have yeah. talked about this in years past. Yeah. And in fact, we used to go on YouTube because you should check. If you want to see how hot Helen Mirren was, look up Age of Consent on YouTube mm-hmm. and you see how smoking hot she was. Mm-hmm. Now, ladies and gentlemen, on Blu-ray, or not Blu-ray, DVD, the 45th anniversary release of Age of Consent. Age oh, of yeah. Consent, directed by Michael mm-hmm. Powell. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, this is with James Mason also. And it's about uh, the life of this uh, Australian artist named Norman Lindsay. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, he, uh, he meets this very sexy, uninhibited uh, woman played by um, Helen Mirren, and uh, it's all about James Mason and Helen Mirren. And uh, I'll tell you something. Is the film good? Who cares? Because Helen Mirren? Darn right. Smoking hot. All right, and then lastly, we've got a whole bunch from the uh, Kino Lorber uh, Studio Classics line, all of these from, you know, mostly from MGM and Orion, and uh, I'll go through these as quickly as I can. This one is a really weird kind of exploit, quasi-exploitation film from uh, 1974 called Deranged, The Confessions of a Necrophile. This is, uh, not, it's, I wouldn't say this is the first film based on Ed Gein, uh, but it's certainly one of the most interesting first films based on Ed Gein. Uh, it's predated, of course, by Psycho, which is very much inspired uh, by the, the horrible doings of Ed Gein. Um, but, uh, you know, Ed Gein is also the guy, I mean, a lot of people may not know this, but Psycho, uh, Silence of the Lambs, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they're all inspired by the story of Ed Gein. He was such a creepy, screwy guy, and he didn't really kill anyone that we know of, you know, he just sort of stored their body parts. He was more of a grave robber than anything else. Um, anyway. think? May have killed his mom, but that's, that's the Psycho thing. Anyway, um, so... This is basically the uh, the Ed Gein story done in a very strange way. Uh, Roberts Blossom plays Ed Gein, and uh, Roberts Blossom, some people might remember, he's the crazy old guy in Close Encounters. He's the one that talks about. Remember the scene where they're talking to everybody's sitting there, and he starts talking about Bigfoot. Of course, I mean, he's, he's, he's got saw the mustache. Big, saw Bigfoot once, had a scream I wouldn't want to hear twice. He had a toe, a foot that went from head, heel to toe, and he throws the thing across the table. I mean, and he just derails that whole moment. But it's great. He's Robert Blossom. So he plays Ed Gein. Uh, this is on Blu-ray. This was, of course, an AIP film at the time. And uh, you know what? It's it Deranged is the title. I would say it's worth a, worth a look if that's your, your genre thing. Mel Brooks's Life Stinks with Leslie Ann Warren from 1991. Pretty much the film that sealed Mel Brooks's fate as a director. Uh, he put himself back in front of the camera, and this thing bombed like nobody's business. Uh, it's too bad. Because it's not a good film. 
He's just trying too hard. It's sort of like it felt like his moment had passed, but uh, I would have loved to see him make a few more films. But anyway, this didn't really pan out for him. Uh, but for Brooks fans, it's worth, you know, probably a novelty check out. Uh, Jeff Bridges and Tommy Lee Jones in the surprisingly good Blown Away. I like this movie. It is good. Directed by Stephen Hopkins. Much better than anybody's ever given it credit for. Uh, Stephen Hopkins. It's got a good who, twist ending. It does have a good twist ending. And Stephen Hopkins was, uh, was a you know, really good A-list director for a moment there doing things like The Ghost in the Darkness and Predator 2 and... Uh, he, he wasn't, you know, he had a, he had a moment. So Hopkins was a real workmanlike early '90s uh, action director, and he has a great cast here. So that's on Blu-ray. We also have Monty Walsh with Lee Marvin uh, and Jack Palance and Jean Moreau, which is a, a great uh, kind of uh, you know late days old west movie from that 1970 period when old westerns were kind of becoming new westerns. Uh, directed by the great cinematographer William Fraker in one of his few directing outings. And uh, he does a very good job. Great score by John Barry. That is also uh, definitely worth checking out. Rush, which was the only film directed by the late Lily Feeney Zanuck, Richard Zanuck's wife uh, and producing partner of such films as Jaws. She does a great job here. This is all about uh, undercover cops and uh, the heroin trade. And Jason Patrick and Jennifer Jason Lee do amazing work here. Sam Elliott basically plays Sam Elliott, which is all he ever plays, and he's great at it. Uh, great supporting performances by William Sadler and Max Perlick and Greg Allman. Greg Allman basically playing Greg Allman as if he were a drug dealer. Uh, Real Men with James Belushi and John Ritter is terrible. It's just terrible. Wait, wait, you, you're saying a James Belushi movie is terrible? It's just terrible. I love John Ritter, but this thing was just horrible. It's just, I, 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 I get hives even thinking about sitting through this. Um... This is horrible. I mean, this is all the people who did Scarface, right? It was, you know, the, it was Louis Stroller and Martin Bregman, John Alonzo as DP, but this ain't no Scarface. This is just a really stupid comedy with two actors who deserve better. Um, bunch of stuff from, uh, with Boris Karloff and Christopher Lee and the whole kind of hammer crowd. Um, I'll go through these quickly. The Crimson Cult with Boris Karloff and the late Christopher Lee. Uh, House of a Thousand Dolls with Vincent Price. And Boris Karloff in Black Sabbath, which is a Mario, a, a pretty stylish and gruesome Mario Bava film. And then lastly, Vincent Price, Peter Cushing, and Robert Quarry in Madhouse. Uh, all of these are AIP films. They are all obviously attempts to sort of Americanize the, uh, the Hammer uh, brand. And all produced by the, uh, the late Sam Arkoff, who I always so enjoyed. And uh, they're okay. They're, they're fine. They're sort of second-tier wannabe Hammer films. And then lastly, a trio of exploitation classics. Real classics. Um, this one is kind of less a classic uh, exploitation film, a little bit more of a film just from the, the exploitation era. It's a, it was a United Artists film at the time, so technically not an exploitation film, more of a studio film. Uh, this is uh, uh, The Report to the Commissioner, which is one kind of like a... It's sort of in the same league as, as uh, Across 110th Street. Yafit Koto is also in this one. It's got a similar vibe to it, similar feel. Uh, some great figures from the 70s and 80s. Hector Elizondo, Vic Tabak, Bob Balaban. Uh, a lot of people... Susan Blakely, you know. When was the last time you heard anybody talk about Susan Blakely? Or Vic Tabak. Or Vic Tabak, right? He's awesome. Yeah. He was an Alice. Piece of the action. <laughs> Damn right. Fizbin. Uh, Sugar Hill is a real classic of the black exploitation era. This is a uh, an Orion film that stars uh, Marky Bay and Robert Quarry, 
And uh, it's effectively a zombie movie. Um, you know, it's kind of a kind of a hipster zombie movie, directed by Paul Maslansky, who would go on to do quite a number of things. Uh, this is 1974, right smack in the middle of the black exploitation period. It's uh, it, you know, it, it's not uh, it's not exactly Truck Turner. Oh yeah, get some. <laughs> and that's where we're gonna end. Because Isaac Hayes and Truck Turner is just fantastic. Yapit Koto is also in this, but Isaac Hayes has never been better than when he is Truck Turner. Um, this is just such a fun film. Produced by your good friend and certainly my acquaintance, Fred Weintraub. I know, crazy, right? Yeah. So this is this is one of Fred's pride and joy. It should be. Yeah. It's cool. It's a, it's a fantastic film. Uh, I mean, you know, Isaac Hayes has never been cooler. And uh, by 1974, he had already won his Oscar for uh, Shaft, for doing the score for Shaft, the music, the song, you know, that, that, I mean, which was just one of the legendary Oscar performances of all time, where he's wearing the, like, fishnet chain top. Yeah. Come on. It's the best. It's the best. So uh, Isaac Hayes here stepping in front of the camera and, uh, and giving it his all and doing a great job. Um, Fred, of course, produced this with Paul Heller, who did, you know... That, they were partners. They were partners, but Paul Heller, who's commonly known Midnight Cowboy and Graduate and various other films from late 60s. So Paul Heller had, had his moment there, too. And directed by the great Jonathan Kaplan, Heart Like a Wheel. Yeah. So, you know, who'd go on... Jonathan Kaplan's... What, what, what cop show did he do? Law and Order? Was he a Law and Order guy? It was one of those shows. He, Jonathan Kaplan? Yeah. Was, Could be. Some, there's some long-running cop show that he became... Star Wars? ...producer slash showrunner of. I can't recall. Anyway, so uh, also in this is, you know, Dick Miller, who's in everything. Scatman Crothers, Nichelle Nichols shows up in this thing. I mean, it's a, it's a great film. So, Truck Turner, one of the classics of that era, and uh, Isaac Hayes, never been better. And with that, Mark, we are done. Wait, what's your Wi-Fi password? You can tell me after we're done. I will do that. I need your Wi-Fi password. All right. Bye, everybody.